Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you just for your love for us. What an incredible love. Lord, it's just so breathtaking when we have moments when we can come into your presence where we as fumbling beings, Lord, that make so many mistakes get the privilege of coming into the presence of a holy God, the God who has created all things and holds all things together by the word of your power. And so we thank you now, Lord, that we can come. And Father, your word tells us that it never returns void. Lord, but it accomplishes that for which it is sent forth. Well, this morning, Lord, as your word is taught here, we pray that it accomplish in each of us that for which you're sending it forth. Lord, just give us hearts that are soft and ready to receive, ears that are open, we pray, that we would grow in knowledge and grace, that our lives will bring glory to Jesus, for we ask it in his name. Amen. We are halfway through, effectively, our study in the book of First Kings. The first 11 chapters that we've uh, journeyed through already, um, we see Solomon uh, getting up to uh, the, the point of building the temple. We see him obviously becoming king, building the temple. Uh, Israel comes to that place where it really becomes the, the, the highest it's ever become in terms of the, the relationship to the surrounding nations. Israel was the nation that everybody else was looking up to at this time. But then we saw last week, and we'll comment again in a moment, how we decline. Everything starts to go wrong because God is not the focus. God is not the central point anymore. Everything was right. The, the nation was set up with the temple there glittering and gleaming away in the Middle Eastern sun. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't just about the external things. The problems were those of the heart and how it led that nation uh, into such a state of disrepair as we're going to go on and see. From chapters 12 through 22, we're going to see, um, as we started to look last time, um, Rehoboam is going to become the next king. He's following his father, Solomon. Um, but then this individual who we saw last time as well, Jeroboam, he'd been elevated by Solomon. He'd been placed as kind of head over his tribe. And he ends up having this prophecy that he is going to become a king in Israel. And that God promises him that his lineage would carry on to endless generations, if he obeyed. What an incredible promise, this young individual who's really just stepped onto the scene from nowhere. But as a result, Solomon tries to uh, sort him out, and he, he flees, he goes down to Egypt, and that's where he stayed. And then we're going to go on and see, really from this morning onwards, the history of the kings of Israel. And uh, just to help you, we've got the books of Chronicles and the books of Kings. Now, both of them are very similar in a lot of the content. But Kings focuses primarily on the northern kingdom. And we'll look at it in detail in a little bit uh, in a little time. But um, the book of Chronicles focuses more on the southern kingdom. So Kings focuses more on Israel, Chronicles focuses more on Judah. Now some people argue and they'll say that um, Chronicles tends to look at more of a spiritual side of it and Israel look, uh, and the Kings looks at more of a, a practical and logistical side of things. Uh, there may be that in there, but I think it's more helpful to see them as Israel uh, is focused, or the focal point of Kings and Judah is the focal point of Chronicles uh, as we go through and study. You'll see the emphasis clearly in those places. Uh, so... 
just to remind ourselves what we saw last time, this lamentable three words that begin chapter 11, but King Solomon. I'm not sure whether any of you have started to see, um, but on the website each week now I'm putting a summary of the, the services, of the teaching on the Sunday mornings. Um, and I was just commenting in the, the, the post on the blog from, from last Sunday, those three words, you know, but... Everything's going so well, and suddenly we have this word, but, and it's just that, you know, you get called before, you know, your teacher at school, if you can remember that far back, and, you know, you're doing very well, but, and that's the kind of, uh uh-oh, here we go. Uh, And, you know, know, your mum says, your room's fairly tidy, but, and it's just that, uh, something missing, something lacking. And this is what's happened here, because everything was going well for Solomon, but... And then we have king. Now, to have the fact that it's the king is bad enough, but then we're told it's not just any old king, it's King Solomon. The one who had these visions from God, the one who had so many blessings. Everything should have been right. But we're told that King Solomon loved many strange women. And as the word had already prophesied back in Deuteronomy we saw last week, uh, his heart was pulled away from God on account of the 700 wives and 300 concubines. And we're told in verse 6 of chapter 11 that Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's how God viewed it. It wasn't a case of, well, it's a shame. No, it was evil. It was rebellion against God. It goes right the way back to that which took place in the Garden of Eden. And it's not necessarily the act. It's the intents of the heart. And I've said before that in the Garden of Eden, as Eve is faced there in that situation with the fruit on the tree, at what point did she sin? Was it the moment she bit into that fruit? Was it maybe the, the moment she kind of plucked it off the tree? No, the, the sin took place the moment she decided in her heart. That's when the rebellion took place. Everything else was just the outworking of that. And that's why Jesus says that these evil thoughts come from the heart, the, the murderers, the adulterers and so on. It's all within the heart. That's the, the real problem. As a result of this, God declares that he's going to rend the kingdom from Solomon. And of course it doesn't happen during Solomon's reign, but during his son's reign. But he promises that Judah will be left just as a kind of tribe on its own effectively for David's posterity. Because God had already made a promise to David. And God's promises, as we've seen, are unconditional. These particular There are some promises we've seen already up to the beginning of the year. Um, that are based upon our obedience. But this promise was a promise that God had made to David, not based upon David's ability or anything else, but this was a promise that God had delighted uh, to say to David that one of his descendants would always sit on the throne. Not so with with Solomon. Uh, We see that the lineage uh, in Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel are different, and we've uh, talked about that before. Benjamin also will be part of that group. Effectively, Benjamin becomes absorbed into Judah. If you remember, uh, if you study through the book of Judges, Benjamin as a tribe almost gets wiped out totally. Uh, so they end up uh, effectively coming now under the banner of Judah. And we'll look at that in detail in a moment. So we've had the kingdom. The Saul becomes the first king of the nation. That's dealt with in First Samuel. And then we are introduced to the king that God really had uh, intended for the nation, uh, David, a man after God's own heart. Second Samuel and First Chronicles give us really the life of David. And then we move on, as we've seen, to Solomon. 
And then this division, which took place around about 985 BC. There is some debate amongst scholars as to the exact date, uh, but somewhere in that region uh, of time. Uh, and then we're going to see that Judah, so uh, effectively the tribe of Judah, and say Benjamin in there as well, uh, come under the reign of Rehoboam, and Jeroboam then takes the rest of the tribes of Israel and rules over them. And again, with an incredible promise. Now, again, that's the, the, the section that we're focusing on. But it's interesting if you look at the history of the kings of Israel, that you see this is the portion here that is dealt with by First Kings. That's where we are going to be going up to in the end of uh, the study of First Kings. Um, Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nebat, this individual, for 22 years we're going to find out he ends up reigning for. His son becomes the next king, but only for two years. And then we find this constant change of dynasty all the way through, uh, up to Jehu. Uh, and then all the way down here, uh, we find that his, his children to the fourth generation, as God promises him, uh, end up sitting on the throne. Although the last one, just for six months, then another change of dynasty, and so on and so on. Um, so it becomes a very messy affair. There's not a good king amongst them. Not a single king in that group that really seeks God. And uh, we're going to go through and look at each of them uh, as we go through our study onward through the book of Kings. So... Let's jump into chapter 12 then and pick up where we've got to. We read the first verse of chapter 12. And Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. Now this is a very clever move in a sense on the behalf of Rehoboam. Because of course the capital of the nation effectively is Jerusalem. That's where David has been king. That's where Solomon has been king. That's where the temple has been built. But Rehoboam does something that's uh, very... uh, uh, politically shrewd. We, we were seeing all the things going on with the, the elections in this country at the moment and how people are trying to appeal to various groups and so on, uh, the various parties. Well, Shechem, the first occurrence in Scripture, is actually back in Genesis 33. You remember as Jacob comes back into the land, uh, he comes upon this place. It was the home of the Hivites. They were one of the uh, nations that inhabited the land of Canaan uh, up to this point. One of the nations that God had told them to remove. Uh, Hamer is an individual who was the leader of this group that we're told. And his son, also by the name of Shechem, um, and possibly why the town was called such, um, the, his son ends up um, raping Dinah, who was Jacob's daughter. And as a result of that, uh, Simeon and Levi end up going and taking revenge. Um, but this is the first time Shechem appears in Scripture, this particular town. Uh, location-wise, we're looking here on the map. So we've got down here uh, the area of Jerusalem. In this area of Jerusalem is actually there. Uh, the tribe of Judah is below that. Benjamin is just above it, which is all you see the connection why Benjamin and Judah end up effectively together here. Um, just to show you on a map, we may look later as well, but Dan, the tribe of Dan are here, but they also have this area right up the top. This portion, they said, wasn't enough for them. They weren't content with the boundaries that God had set. And they wanted more. And they end up this. And you'll see that they become the first area to really go into idolatry. Um, But this is the place now where all Israel are gathering together. This is the place that Rehoboam is calling them so that he can be, be made king. Now, this is also a very interesting location because when Joshua comes into the land, okay, so this is after the wandering in the wilderness for 38 years of wandering, 40 years in total with the two years at Sinai. They come into the land and God had given Moses instructions and had been passed on to Joshua that there would be two mountains. And these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, would be mountains from which they would recite the blessings and the curses that God had already given them through Moses. 
So half of the tribes, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph and Benjamin, climb up Mount Gerizim, which is a fruitful mountain typically. And the other tribes, uh, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan and Naphtali, end up climbing up Mount Ebor. Um, and effectively shouting across from one to the other, uh, relatively close to each other. And they pronounce again the blessings and the curses that God had said would come upon them if they obeyed. For the blessings, obviously, and then the curses if they disobeyed. Now, right in the middle of these two mountains is the town of Shechem. Now, you remember also, this place occurs because uh, in John 19, Jesus there meets a woman at a well. And she's just outside the town. But, of course, this question is about where should we worship? Should we worship in Jerusalem or upon this mountain? Yeah, the mountain in, refer- in reference there would be typically Mount Gerizim, this fruitful uh, place. And they would say that that is the place. And we'll look as to why uh, this, uh, the Samaritans came into being a little bit later in our study in the book of Kings. Um, but nevertheless, the Samaritans have made this their focal point. So it's a very politically uh, astute move now to come to Shechem because wherever your um, particular leanings, Shechem is a, is a kind of a pivotal point, uh, very central. And ultimately... What we see here um, is that this becomes a a place of contract, a place place of covenant, a place of agreement. Now, again, going back to the portion in Deuteronomy where these blessings and curses are given, God effectively gives the requirements and the expectations for the nation, what he expects of them. And then God also promises that he would do his part in, in accordance to their obedience. So both parties effectively know their obligations. Israel, back in Deuteronomy, vouched to walk in God's ways to keep his statutes, and then God vouched to provide, to protect, and to lift up the nation. So this agreement is taking place at this point, and the contract is actually signed back in uh, chapter 27, but ratified effectively at this place of Shechem. So when they get there, they end up building an altar, and upon this, the stones there, they write this contract that's already been agreed. Um, so really, it's, uh, the, the penalties for breach of contract are also written there as well. Um, so Shechem is a place of ratification, and that's why Rehoboam is now bringing the nation here. It's effectively bringing the nation back together, reminding them of what happened, their roots as a nation, that they'd come into the land. And that God had been faithful. God had set up a king over the nation. And effectively he's saying to the people, suddenly by coming to this place, remember what God has done for us. And remember that God has established the kingdom. And trying to unite everybody together. So that's why this place becomes so important. But then we read verse 2. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who was yet in Egypt, so again he's fled down there and was staying there, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spoke unto Rehoboam, saying, Thy father, speaking of Solomon, made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou uh, the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which uh, he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. It's a tricky one for the king because does he give in to their request? And would that then imply that he's weak? Or does he reject what they're saying? You see, Solomon had introduced very heavy taxes on the people. We'd seen that already. Uh, not necessarily, not seemingly for the temple project, um, but to fund his lavish lifestyle. We're actually told specifically that the children of Israel weren't taxed for the work of the temple. 
Nevertheless, these taxes have been put in place, and it seems to be just to fund the lifestyle of the king, to give him all the things that he had, all the, the food and everything that was provided for his court on a daily basis. So the people obviously are very unhappy about this. You know, I mean, imagine what it would be like to have kind of politicians that are you know, living in a lap of luxury and it's at our expense. I mean, as if that could happen. Um, Rehoboam now is given this opportunity to retain the people's loyalty. And all he's got to do is effectively reduce the taxes, be a bit kinder to the people. And that's all they're asking for. And it's not an unreasonable request. And he said unto them, Depart yet for three days, then come again to me. And the people departed. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon, his father, while he yet lived, and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? So he goes to his father's counsellors, and he asks them their opinion. What should I say? Now, Solomon had actually said, and we have recorded in Proverbs, Without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counsellors, they are established. So it's good to seek counsel. Proverbs 24 verse 6 says, For by wise counsel thou shalt make thy war. And in multitude of counsellors there is safety. Again, getting other people's opinion is often a very good thing to do. Proverbs 11 verse 14, Where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counsellors, again, it says there is safety. So we have these scriptures that speak of counsel, but it needs to be mentioned that not all counsel is good counsel. You see, you could look in 2 Samuel 17 and you look there at the counsel of Hushai, who counsels Absalom, David's son, who's had this kind of coup and taken the throne, and Ahithophel. And these two individuals, and it's a very interesting situation that happens there. And it depends upon the perspective of the one giving the counsel as to whether it's good or bad. You see, David stated, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. That's in Psalm 1.1. So, actually, there is counsel that we can listen to that is not godly. So we need to be very careful, rather than just listening to other people. It's good to take counsel. Yes, it is, but only if that counsel is godly. Psalm 33.10 says, The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen to naught. So we need to be careful. Verse 7 says, And they spoke unto him, saying, so this is the, his father's counsellor, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and will serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him, which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me? saying, Make my, uh, the, the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. Now, just point out, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with youth. There's nothing wrong with uh, the idea of getting counsel from young people, providing it's godly. It's the same issue. You know, we, we're told in the book of Jeremiah of the fact that God had chosen him and God had appointed him, yet a young man, to go and speak to the nations. Paul says to Timothy, Let no one despise your youth. So it's not an issue of age. It's an issue of the source of the wisdom that is coming through. If God is the source, if God is the one that is leading an older person or a young person to give advice, well then it's good. But if it's not, if it's just worldly, then it's bad. 
And the young men that were grown up with him spoke unto him, saying, Thou shalt speak unto this people that speak unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now, whereas my father did lay upon you a heavy yoke, I will, uh, I, sorry, I will add to your yoke. Uh, my father has chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. In other words, he's saying, you think my father was bad. And he gives them this horrible news that they didn't want to hear, that it's going to be much tougher under Rehoboam. He's not going to consent to what they're asking. So, verse 12 says, Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day, as the king had appointed, saying, come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people roughly and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him, and spoke to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, my father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. I just wonder whether he delivered this with the same kind of conviction that these young men that had counseled him had said. You know, it's sometimes very difficult when you're relaying somebody else's message to give it the same kind of import that they did. And I get the, the feeling maybe that Solomon's younger counselors, those of his friends that he'd grown up with, had been very forceful in the way they'd said it to him. And so that Rehoboam thought, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And then he goes to try and deliver this and almost kind of fumbles his speech to the people. And he just loses any kind of credibility or confidence. Wherefore, the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord, that he might perform his saying, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah, the Shilonite, unto Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Now again, that refers to the prophecy we'd seen last week. So when all Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them, the people answered the king, saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now, see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. Now, of course, the nation are not looking at this in terms of which line the Messiah is going to come from or, or anything that we may look at when we look at these details. They're purely looking at it as their own lives under the rule of effectively a tyrant. They don't want that. And so they rebel. And they're saying, you know what, you can do what you want. We're not going to serve you. We don't reject, we, we're just rejecting your authority over us. And so they, they leave. But as for the children of Israel, which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. And again, as we've already mentioned, Benjamin kind of grouped in with that as well. Uh, then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, and all Israel stoned him with stones. So this individual, a man who's in charge of the treasury, effectively, minister of the treasury here, effectively going now to go and speak to this rebellious group, and we're told all Israel stoned him with stones. That wasn't the response that uh, Rehoboam was looking for. And we're told that he died. Therefore, King Rehoboam uh, made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. Yes, he thought that's probably time to get out of there, which no doubt was very wise. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. Now that last phrase was true up until 1948. Well, in 1948... As had been prophesied, as is recorded uh, in the book of Ezekiel, they became a nation again. And no longer do we have Israel and Judah. There is just one united nation of Israel that God has joined together. They are, at the moment, without the breath of spirit in them. But they've been raised up. You know, we have that great portion in Ezekiel that speaks of these dry bones. 
And they've become a nation again. But of course at the time of the recording of this, it was still the case that they were two separate houses. The house of Judah, the house of Israel, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. And so we actually see, if we look at it geographically, we have this divide. Uh, that We have Judah and Benjamin in this area here. Um, this becomes the northern kingdom, then up the north, the top part, and the southern kingdom here. So uh, Judah, typically in Israel, are the terms we give to them. Jeroboam reigning over this whole region, and then Rehoboam having dominion and reign in the south of the nation. And that's what we're going to look at, the, the two contrasting groups of kings that will then reign in the north and then against the ones that reign in the south. And typically we'll see a lot of wars between the two of them. Now, just want to mention, there is a myth that has kind of crept in, and sometimes you may stumble across this, about the ten lost tribes. See, what is suggested is that um, the tribes in the north, because they're later, 722 BC, they were cap- uh, taken captive by the Assyrians as the northern kingdom falls, they end up getting absorbed into the other nations round about, and they end up being effectively lost. And then from this come ideas of and what's sometimes referred to as British Israelism, is the idea that some of those descendants of the Jews ended up in Britain. And of course, some of them ended up in Denmark, because we have Dan and Danmark, it's similar. I'm not joking, seriously, that's what some people have proposed. And they've suggested that some of the tribes of Israel have ended up scattered into various countries around Europe. Now the problem with that is, it doesn't fit with what scripture says. Because what we'll see in 2 Chronicles uh, 11, if the Lord tarries and we journey there, is that the godly individuals who were up north in Israel, then travelled down to Rehoboam. They get so incensed by what is about to happen, they end up travelling down south. So it wasn't just the, uh, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin down south, we have other individuals. Also, we find that the idol worshippers in the south end up going to Jeroboam in the north. So this is kind of a mix. So all 12 tribes, we find, are evident in the post-exile record. So after they've been away to Babylon and come back. Because the tribes that have been taken by Assyria then get conquered by Babylon. So they all end up effectively under the rule of the Babylonians. And then finally, you remember, Cyrus... Size of the decree and allows them to return home in about 537 BC. Ezra, Nehemiah, etc. deal with a lot of that uh, in their books. And we have New Testament confirmations of that as well. Anna, we find, uh, who was, remember when Jesus was a baby, she was brought to the temple, um, she was from the tribe of Asher. Well, that's one of the tribes up north. Paul, also uh, from the tribe of Benjamin. So there's others as well in, in the scripture. James writes to the 12 tribes. In Revelation 7, on at least three occurrences, we have reference to the 12 tribes. They're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. And God has been bringing them back to the land of Israel as he promised he would. So if you stumble across this idea that these tribes have got lost and they've ended up scattered around Europe somewhere, and you know, certain countries may actually be the remnant, no, that's not what scripture says. And it came to pass, verse 20, when all Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David but the tribe of Judah only. This is incredible because God grants Jeroboam sovereignty over ten tribes here. Now, it's incredible because this young man, in this position, 
could have just had a, such a wonderful opportunity to walk with God. He just comes onto the scene and God gets this prophet Ahijah to go and speak to him. And all he had to do was obey. But fear steps in. The fear of man brings a snare, we're told in scripture. And that's exactly what happens. Because we're going to see that he's fearful that the people would return to Rehoboam. And we'll look at the details in just a moment. But as a result of this, Jeroboam then sets up centers of worship, effectively, in Dan, right at the top, and Bethel, which is in the southern part of the northern kingdom. And this becomes a real snare to the people. They become centers of idolatry and so on. He also will find appoints the lowest of the people as priests. It's kind of like, you want to be priests? Yeah, give it a go. You don't have to be of the tribe of Levi, as long as you, you're going to desire to do this, that's fine. And really it's as, as simple as that for, Reba, for Jeroboam. You know, there's no godly qualification required. Um, it's if you want the job, you can have it, effectively. And so all sorts of people end up becoming priests. God, as we're going to see, sends a prophet to warn, warn Jeroboam of this. So let's pick up verse 21. And when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen men, which were warriors, to fight against the house of Israel, to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So Rehoboam's planning war. He's about to march out against them. But the word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord, and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. So, in obedience, Rehoboam doesn't now go into battle, as a, to his credit. And then we're told, Jeroboam built Shechem and the Mount Ephraim and dwelt there. And went out from thence and built Penuel. So he starts to fortify and to secure his kind of kingdom now. And Jeroboam said in his heart, so this is Jeroboam in the north, one who's rebelled, leading the northern kingdoms, uh, northern tribes. Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If these people go up and do sacrifice in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then shall the heart of these people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. What was he fearful of? He was fearful of what we read in Exodus chapter 23 Uh, let me just read from verse 14 because god had said to the nation three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread that's the first feast there is a specific day on the 15th of the first month which was the feast of unleavened bread but there was also a seven-day festival which included passover the feast of unleavened bread and also associated this with, with, with this was the feast of first fruits That's what we're about to celebrate as we go into the period of time where we celebrate the resurrection. I prefer to avoid the term Easter if we can because that's a pagan term, but um, we'll look at more of that uh, maybe next weekend. But thou shalt keep uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I command thee, in the time appointed in the month of Abib. So it's effectively our March-April time. For in it thou did come out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty. 
So that's the first feast, the first period of time uh, in the, the beginning of their, their uh, religious year, effectively. And in the Feast of Harvest, that's the next one. That's the one that you and I refer to as Pentecost. Shavuot also is a, a, the Hebrew term. The Feast of Harvest, uh, the first fruits of thy labours which thou hast sown in the field. So that's the next group. And then the final time of these three specific times in the year is uh, the Feast of Ingathering which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in all thy labours out of the field. And you'll find that that feast also will encompass the Feast of Trumpets and, uh, and, and Feast of Tabernacles, all, all part of this, this same uh, period of time at the end of their um, religious ceremonial year in terms of the calendars. So again, three times a year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord. So these three feasts, unleavened bread, as I said already, the Feast of Harvest, which was 50 days after Pentecost, and then finally the Feast of Ingathering. And then you've got Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles, all really included within that group. And so what, Rehoboam, sorry, what Jeroboam is concerned about is that Israel, if they do this, they're going to go back to the temple. And somebody's going to say, why, why do we not have this King Rehoboam to reign over us? Why have we got Jeroboam? And so he's fearful that if the people do this, that they're going to depart from him, they're going to rebel against him, and his life could be in danger. Now, of course, lack of trust. He's not trusting that God is the one that said he would be king. He didn't need to worry about this. God would have arranged and dealt with this accordingly. But nevertheless, he doesn't trust. He takes it into his own hands. Note to self, never a good thing. So many times in scripture we see individuals try to solve problems that they perceive by doing the things that they think are right never works whereupon the king took counsel but not of god not from godly people either he took counsel and made two calves of gold does that ring a bell maybe exodus 32 and said unto them it's too much for you to go up to jerusalem oh it's a long way isn't it you know sometimes people say that about going to church do you go to how far do you travel that's a long way Just, just as an aside, there was a, we were up at Skipton some uh, years ago at a conference and um, one of the American um, teachers who were over uh, was chatting to uh, an organist uh, that was part of the church there and he said, oh, are you from this church? He said, well, yes, he said, but uh, he said, I, I don't actually live here. He said, oh, he said, well, you have to travel. He said, yes, he said, a long way. And this American's thinking, you know, 100 miles or whatever. And he said, yes, he said, I actually live in Bradford, uh, uh, 12 miles away. And this is the perception we sometimes have of distance. And it just, just made me laugh the way that sometimes we think it's such a distance. And, you know, some people will only go to church if they can walk there. Um, but this is what Jeroboam is suggesting. You know, you don't want to travel all the way down to Jerusalem, surely. It's a long way. So he says, look, I've got new gods for you. Aren't they shiny? Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other put he in Dan. This thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. So Dan actually becomes the principal place where this idolatry starts to take place. People worshipping something made of hands. After all God had done for them. And he made a house of high places. And made priests of the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi, as I said earlier. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar, 
So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto uh, the calves that he had made, so these golden calves. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. It's just an incredible situation. Again, we talked a little bit about high places and the way these were used, typically because it provided a great vantage point to look at the sun, the moon, the stars, and so on. These things that had been worshipped, and as we said previously in one of the sessions, you know, all of the days of our week are based upon pagan deities, uh, and so on. You know, even you know Sunday, Moon Day, uh, and so on. We looked at that previously. So the high places—that's why they met on the top of hills, um, because of that. And this practice continues. And you know, just such a, a mess. You know, why even bother going through all this uh, ritual and rigmarole if they weren't going to the true God? If they weren't going to the worship of the temple, why bother? Well, sadly, it's because of this need man has to get close to God. But of course, it becomes religion because man tries to do it in his own way, on his own terms. You see, Jeroboam realized that he couldn't just say to the people, well, there is no God. Stop worshipping God. So he provides an alternative. He provides a substitute. And to us, we look at this and it seems, how on earth could they fall for something so stupid? But you, know, you and I do the same things. We find there's things in this world that attract our attention. They become appealing to us. They may pull our hearts from God. We don't realise it very often at the time. And then sometimes, graciously, God will remind us and convict us that there is something that's come between us. So he offered upon the altar, which he had made in Bethel, the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even in the month which he devised of his own heart. This is the way the Holy Spirit records that for us. It was just—it was a feast that he'd made up. I mean, this is incredible because all of the feasts they'd had actually referenced. Real things, real events. The Passover was a real event that took place. That's why they celebrated it. The Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, a real event. Because for that particular day after they left Egypt, they hadn't taken any leavened bread with them. And every one of the feasts that God had ordained, there was a specific reason for it. And suddenly, it's like just a new public holiday is just added to the calendar, but without any reason whatsoever. Again, he's devised it of his own heart. And ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. Just going through the motions. Just purely a religious exercise now. And the people just getting into this kind of ritual celebration that really meant nothing. Had no purpose to it. And again, sacrificing animals without any real reason for it. So it was just an outward show and it had lacked any internal change. And of course we see a lot of the established church sadly getting into just the ritual, going through the motions. And has there been any real change? But what about us also? You know, we can get caught up in our own type of tradition. The things that we do, the way that we do it. You know, it's nice this morning to do things a little bit differently. We don't have to do things the same each week. You know, I can't for a minute imagine that the church in Antioch would have been, no, 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 we we can't stop and allow Paul to talk a bit longer this morning because we've got to do this, we've got to have our worship time. You know, they would have been delighted when Paul came back and was sharing the things the Lord had done with him when he'd been out in his missionary journeys. 
you know, and it's not about the program we have set. It's about allowing God to work in our midst. And sadly, what happens up north, everything, the whole soul of the nation starts to die. It's such a shame how they just walk away. And again, this young man who had such a great potential career ahead of him, if he'd have just obeyed God, throws it all away, ultimately because of fear of man. What a challenge to us. You know, how often we don't step out in faith because we're fight, frightened of what somebody may say or somebody may do. We'll leave it there for this week. Um, chapter 13 that we look at next week is an interesting chapter to say the least. Uh, so read ahead and we'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father God, we just thank you once again for your word. Father, we thank you for the lessons that you have for us. Father, we see how this individual, Jeroboam, has so much going for him. Lord, you've given him this incredible opportunity. And yet, effectively, at the first hurdle, he falls because of the fear of man. Father, help us not to be fearful of man, but, Lord, to be fearful of you. Lord, help us not to have a false religion. Lord, a religion that's based upon what we do. Father, we pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That it become real. Father, just help us to learn from these mistakes that were made. And Lord, not repeat them. Help us, Lord, to serve you with a whole heart. Lord, we need your help. We need your spirit to enable us to do this. And so we ask now, Lord, for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us. As we go through this week, Lord, may we not be fearful of man. But Lord, help us to walk by faith. For your glory we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.